I just wrapped up an episode with John Hornick, a top attorney in the real estate investment space. John is also the mayor of Marlboro, New Jersey, and really just an all-around great human being. In today's episode, we unpack the eviction moratorium, 2022 midterms, and some pretty ironclad history that may give us insight into the next few years of real estate-related legislation. Of course, no real estate investment chat would be fulfilled without interest rate talk, beautiful prognostication. John and I talked about the Fed's moves related to tapering and interest rate hikes. When are they coming? What's the magnitude going to be? And <laughs> and my name is Dalton, Patrick Swayze in Roadhouse. Somehow we got down that rabbit hole. If you know, you know. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott. I'm joined today by John Hornick. Our chief focus is going to be the eviction moratorium, the origin, the many different iterations of it, state, federal, where we are today, and probably most importantly, what tomorrow looks like. John, you know I love chatting it up with you. Thank you so much for joining uh, my my pleasure, Dalton. I love uh, being here with you and having the open exchange like we've done so often. For sure. We could really spend uh, probably an hour going through your CV, your accomplishments, but I'm just going to hit a few to give you an introduction to everybody and let me know what I miss. You know, you're the chairman of the private lender group at LaRocca, Hornick, Rosen, and Greenberg, really a preeminent law firm in the private lending space. You're also the general counsel for the National Private Lenders Association, and you're an elected official, right? You're the mayor of Marlboro, New Jersey, one of the biggest townships in the state. It does not seem like you are burdened by an abundance of free time, my friend. No, no, that's why my golf game's so bad, Dalton. We were just talking about that. So no, I don't have much free time, but I enjoy being busy. I think I think it, when your hands are moving and your feet are moving, you stay out of trouble. So it's important to be busy all the time. I love it. The old idle mind devil's workshop idea. I'm a fan. So so let's get right to it. We were talking about the eviction moratorium just before we pressed record here. And what a roller coaster of a ride, all these different court rulings. And I told you incredibly honestly that I have I feel like I know 10% of what's going on with the eviction moratorium. See all different kinds of headlines. Not too long ago, one where the Supreme Court vacated the CDC's eviction moratorium. So I guess talk at a high level, what is an eviction moratorium to begin with? And then where did all this sprout up? And then we'll get into the today and tomorrow piece of it. So eviction moratoriums are not new. They've been put into place to stop the displacing of homeowners or renters during times of national trouble. We've seen them in our past, but this time it was triggered because of the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. So in order to understand where the moratoriums are coming from and which still exist, we have to do a little bit of lesson on the different levels of government. So you have the federal government, which has its authority under the Constitution, and they have to have specific action, specific authority to move things forward. So you have executive orders which are allowed from the administrative branch, the president and everybody under him or her. And then you have Congress, which has to act to make it a law. We saw in the beginning of this pandemic, 
that the executive authority through the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, issued an order saying moratoriums are against the health and safety of our country because throwing people out during this pandemic will cause problems. And that was challenged in the court system as being overbroad and not within the authority of the executive branch. And that rule was actually shot down on the federal level. So then the CDC came back and said, we're going to narrow the rule. We're only going to say there's a foreclosure moratorium in those states that have a very high level of COVID-19 present, not the states that have beaten it. And the Supreme Court just last week came in and said, "Uh uh-uh, it's not going to fly. And basically their ruling said Congress, which as you know, is made up of the lower house controlled by the uh, Democrats and the upper house, which is 50-50 tied for the most part right now, but still controlled by the Democrat, had ample time to pass legislation for a foreclosure moratorium to make it the law of the land. And the CDC and the Biden administration can't achieve through executive order what the Congress refused to act on. So the the federal moratorium's gone, but that's just half the story. The other half comes from the states. The states have the ability under the constitution to make rules for themselves. So there's seven or eight states right now, I have them written down, I'll tell you who they are. It's California, Illinois, Minnesota, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, and Washington, all have moratoriums in place at different levels expiring at different times. They keep getting expanded by action of the state government. Now, each state has different rules. If you look at New York, for example, New York says you cannot hold a proceeding that results in an eviction of a tenant. So that has been interpreted to mean that you can't bring a foreclosure action because a foreclosure may be a proceeding that leads to the eviction of a tenant. In New Jersey, you have 21 counties, and the sheriffs in each of the counties are the guys in charge of the foreclosures. And depending on the county, it's up to the sheriff when they want to start holding foreclosure proceedings. And if they're not doing it, there's nothing you can do about it. So it's really it's really getting granular now, but I will say it is going to come to an end. It's going to, with the, with the Supreme Court decision and no action by the Congress, it's going to be more pressure and more pressure on these, these states to, to limit the foreclosure restrictions. And we will be able to move forward with foreclosures, I believe, if not by the end of this year, by early next year in the remaining states. So what, what does that look like, right? From the Great Recession, kind of post 07, 08, you had a massive backlog of foreclosures. And as soon as they opened up, that is how I think a lot of companies in this space kind of got their feet underneath them was financing tranches of SFRs being bought up at just bargain basement prices because they were foreclosures and credit was super tight. What do you think whenever all of these eviction moratoria at the state level expire or get struck down, what does that influx of kind of REO foreclosures look like? Well, I, I, think, I think you're right in the sense that there's comparison to other periods of time. The difference between us and after the 2007 financial crisis and then going back to 2001 and 1992 and then the stock market crash of 1987 
The difference is the real estate, the, the home real estate market is still very high right now in value. There's a large demand. So these foreclosures, while the, the borrowers and the tenants can't pay, the value is still there. So the opportunity to buy stuff and reposition it or sell it is real. So it's about removing tenants at this point. So I think it's going to bring a certain amount of product to the market, which will give lenders opportunities to refinance, to provide bridge financing, to provide construction financing, and then eventually go into a longer term product once stabilized. But I do think there's going to be an influx to perform foreclosures. We at Private Lender Law two years ago launched our loss mitigation and forbearance foreclosure group, and uh, we're gearing up for it. We're going to be ready for as soon as they lift it off in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania to move forward quickly. And we, we actually do this nationwide. I do believe there's going to be a lot of activity there. I don't believe there's going to be large tapes of NPL sold from these banks, because I believe that the values have held and increased if increased on these homes. I believe that the borrower's personal situations have not allowed them to pay. And that is leading up to the foreclosure, not an impairment in value. Right. So that's that's the key difference, right? Like real estate is not the underlying issue here. It's a global pandemic. That's correct. And, and look, a few, a few, and I'm not a skeptic, are used, you know, are smart and they know the system. They know they don't have to pay rent because there's that you can't get an eviction. I, I have been called by several clients who go, I know this guy's a lawyer. He's in my building, he's renting, and he's not paying rent because he told me there's nothing you could do about it. And I go, there's nothing you could do about it. That's the answer. So it's, you know, there are people who are smart. There are people who are in need. There's all types. So, you know, it's important for the lending business for us to move on from this unnatural event. The, the life of a loan is, is a lender makes a loan to a borrower, borrower makes his payment, borrower either pays him back or the lender forecloses and takes the property, right? This is the life of a loan. When you dis, disrupt the natural life of a loan, it, it has to be supplemented somehow. And in this case, it's not. There is nobody making payments to, to landlords or lenders on behalf of borrowers or being allowed to stay in space by operational law. And that's not natural. That's not the way it's supposed to work. So the faster we get back to the way the system is supposed to work, the natural life cycle of a loan, the better off we're all going to be in terms of stabilization and knowing what real values are out there as we continue to move forward. I love that characterization, just something unnatural in what is a very hammered out, relatively boring, could scratch it out on a whiteboard easily process, right? That life of a loan. One question I wanted to follow up with, you mentioned not the first time we've seen eviction moratorium. What are some other times historically that we've seen eviction moratorium pop up? Well, you saw it after uh, 2007, the financial crisis, which was, you know, in my way worse than this. Maybe because of the lessons that we all learned, maybe because the Fed stepped up quickly and the federal government, you know, gave fiscal stimulus quickly and did not wait. And you didn't see collapses of companies like you saw in 2007. I mean, remember all the companies that went out. Remember a company called Bear Stearns, 
a company called Lehman Brothers. You know, you remember big insurance companies, GM was buckling. It was, it was insane. It was the end of the world. All intents and purposes, this pandemic should have been the end of the world. We st- everything was shut down, but it wasn't. It wasn't because the government provided liquidity quickly. They did not. And there were moratoriums back in 2007, 2008, 2009, where we could not move forward with foreclosures. And if, when that was the case, it, again, disrupted the natural life of the loan, and it took a long time to work its way out. That's where the phrase extend. There was also another problem in 2007. The values, everything was impaired. Different than now, which is what was my point in the beginning. In 2007, there was a, a phrase we did as lawyers, we're going to extend and pretend. That was the, the term we used. We're going to extend the loan and pretend things are going to be okay. The values are going to come back. And they did come back. It took six years, but it did come back eventually. So you go, you know, there'd be, you know, you talk to the borrowers on the other side and go, okay, can you make a payment? No. All right. Do you want to give over the property? No. All right. Well, well, well let's talk about it next month. And we'll, you know, we'll extend the modification and, and we'll pretend next month it's going to be different. It wasn't different. But like everything, it comes back, it rebounds. So now, th- there's been moratoriums in our history. Most of them, This is different, though, again, because the value is still there on the property. The only this is a health and safety issue, supposedly. And I think it's going to go away sooner rather than later, especially with this, you know, this Delta variant, which on my government side, I believe we're going to be through this a lot more quickly than we're anticipating. And, you know, I'm saying November, it's going to be through this country. It moves as a quick moving variant. It doesn't linger. It is very dangerous. And, you know, I suppose think everybody should get their vaccine if they haven't done it. It's it's just good being precautious. It's not foolproof, but we will get to the other side of this by the beginning of next year and then deal with what's there. Yeah, that sounds right. So you mentioned the handful of states that have you know their own statewide eviction moratorium in place. When are those going to start tapering off? Is it is it a process in most of them where you think it's going to be extended until they get struck down or they're just going to let them expire? What's that look like? They're not going to be struck down because the, these are these are all blue states and they will be struck down when the powers that be feel the political pressure that they've done enough and that their electoral won't punish them for lifting this up. That's it. And it's starting to happen. You hear the buzz from the state legislatures going, why are we doing this? In the beginning, it was governors issued executive orders and everybody got in line and nobody questioned it. And now you're starting to hear people in the assemblies, the lower house going, why are we doing this? How long are you going to keep this for? Let's pull back the governor's powers. It happened in New Jersey and New York. They've restricted the governor's ability to extend these things without legislative action. And to me, those are the signs. So it's going to be extended a few more times, but not endless. The end is near. And I think that's a good thing for the real estate and the lending world. Do you have a kind of finger on the pulse or ballpark guess on kind of the first and last to fall statewide? Which one's going to... California will be last. Yeah, that sounds like a fair guess. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna bet. I'm gonna go all in on that. So that's my, you know, New York and New Jersey. I think New Jersey will go more quickly than New York. Illinois will fall with New York, and then you know, Washington, 
Minnesota, Minnesota, Minnesota will be second or third to last. New Mexico and Washington will be somewhere in between. Okay. So those are my predictions. So let's see if I'm right on my Vegas odds. We have our office fantasy football draft Thursday. So I'm going to bring you in to pick that for me as well. That's it. I'm prognosticate. That's fun. You know, you should have a blog doing, uh, you should do one of these podcasts for fantasy football. Oh, we are looking at expanding it out into every single arena that I can get my face in front of a camera, John. Do not worry about that. This is, oh yeah, that's, it, it sells itself, Dalton. It sells itself. No, I'm better off for everybody listening and not watching this. this uh, I banged my head on the door this morning, was taking the trash out and opened the back door, pushed it open with my foot. I forgot I had a pair of sneakers behind the door. So it just like bounced and then came back and corner on the head. So I don't think you could see it here, but there's a good little bump. I'm glad I'm, you, you look camera ready to me. So I'm, uh, you must have good makeup people there in the glam, glam squad that helps you out before you get on. Me, I just got to come on here. So It's funny like a true politician, John. I love it. So we walked through the states, the Supreme Court ruling. All right. So what does that mean? You know, presumably, let me back up. A hundred years ago was our last major pandemic that shut down everything, right? The Spanish flu. I think best guess is that it's not going to be a hundred years until the next pandemic pops up, right? Just how globally we are so integrated. A hundred years ago, you couldn't jump on a plane. I'm in South Carolina and seven hours from now be in France. So we're so interconnected that just provides a much easier breeding ground for things like this. So Thinking under the assumption that, hey, something like this is probably going to happen again and pop up, we're certainly going to be better prepared globally, having kind of knocked the dust off of the prep. But given the fact that the Supreme Court knocked down the eviction moratorium, what does that look like in, call it pandemic 2.0? What tools are in the belt? Is it just that the Supreme Court, I guess, kind of got it on a technicality where, hey, so it's way too broad. So there, it, this is actually a very interesting legal theory that you're talking about now. There is a legal theory that was brought up around the Nixon administration. It was called the unitary executive theory. And th- what this meant was that anything the president or anything under the executive branch does is law, is legal, and therefore cannot be challenged. And that's where the whole theory on executive order came from. The ability for the president and his administration, you know, the CDC's part of the administration, could issue rules which apply across the country and everybody had to follow. Now, the the Supreme Court has, since that time, presidents have been issuing a ton of executive orders. Okay, Obama did it. Clinton did it. Bush Jr. did it. Okay, they all did it. Trump did it. The Supreme Court has now taken a view that you don't have the authority to establish permanent laws in this country. The only way to do that is through action by the Congress. It has to be brought up in the House. It has to be voted on in the Senate. And then the president has to sign it unless two thirds of the Congress override a presidential veto if he refuses to sign it. So this is in a in a in actually a short line of decisions coming out of the Supreme Court, which is limiting the ability of the administration under the unitary executive theory to issue laws and rules in themselves without congressional action. 
So it's actually limiting the power of the presidency, which is very interesting and changes the dynamic a lot about how politics are done. So what happens for pandemic, to answer your question, 2.0, 3.0? First, let me say we're not done with pandemic, the one we're in now. This is going to be revisiting us for years, every fall. It's going to be like a flu. We're going to be getting boosters for those who take it, and hopefully life will go on. But I don't think life is going to return to normal anytime in the near future. I mean, we're going to be talking about this. You remember this, Dalton. I'm going to say this. You're going to see newscasters. This is the 10th anniversary of COVID-19. It's going to be 2029, and there's going to be, you know, variant, you know, whatever, and we're all going to be like worried about it. But as long as the variant doesn't turn deadly like Ebola, we're going to get by. We're going to figure out a way to live. We've shown that and we have that resilience. In order for the federal government to now allow moratoriums across the state, they're going to have to enact legislation that gives the authority to the president or one of his administrations or one of his agencies. That's going to have to be an action by the Congress. Without it, the Supreme Court has weighed in and said, you do not have authority to do this. So that's the answer to that. On the state level, it's going to keep happening, and it's going to be de- a debate between the blue and the red states. We could go through it. Florida has no restriction. Texas has no restriction. Arizona has no restriction. And it's going to depend on where the state legislatures and the governors go. And you're going to see that more and more, which means those states are going to become more business friendly because they're going to have more lending in those states has less risk if there is a remedy, if your client doesn't, if your borrower doesn't pay you back or your tenant doesn't pay rent, it's more attractive to investors. It's deemed less risk. Very difficult to do business in New York and New Jersey, California today, because if your client doesn't pay you back, you can't take action to get it back. So that's the issue. And that's what you're going to say. But this will be temporary until the next one. And we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Interesting. And it, it makes complete sense. It kind of falls in place to where without diving into the politicization of it, it's one more thing that is politicized. Everything comes back to politics, Dalton, everything. I mean, that's, it's just, it all does. You could all figure, trace it back to where it's coming from. You just got to, you got to be smart and then go where you could do business. Anything else top of mind looking kind of through the lens of the eviction moratorium, reading the tea leaves, I do want to make sure we chat a little bit about kind of last week, Jerome Powell's remarks. We can jump over to that if uh, if that works. Yeah, I'll just mention this. When structuring it, we do a lot of closings. We do more closings in the private lending space than any firm in the country. And I'm proud of that. But what we try to do is operate on best practices. Anybody who feels that it's just a, a word processing thing to close a loan has no idea of the risks we're talking about. So what we're recommending at closings now, take a pledge of the interest in the borrower. Take it with by obtaining the certificate of the interest, by perfecting, by grabbing the certificated interest in the borrower entity. That will help you with a foreclosure on the borrower if they're not paying, if they don't pay you back. Now, you could still do a UCC foreclosure today. I'm not aware of any case law that says you can't take over the borrower. Right, You can't evict a tenant, which is different than taking over a borrower entity. So there are things you could do. And at the end of the day, leverage is what lenders need in order to get the result, which is to get paid back with their interest. Right, Nobody wants the property. 
in this day and age. Okay, we want we're all lenders. We represent lenders. We want we want to get paid back for the money we put out. So that's that's about leverage. How do you get leverage? Every closing, take a pledge of the membership interest if you could get it. Take it with a certificate. If you can't, file a UCC one and take a general intangible. Take an interest on that. And those type of things are really important to follow in order to protect you going forward. Sage advice, sage advice. So I listened to Chairman Powell's remarks last week, relatively brief, pointed, but a lot to unpack there. Where do you want to start? I thought it was very telling. If you notice, all markets hit all-time high during his remark. Do you know why? Why? I'll tell you why. Because he separated tapering from interest rate adjustment. Everybody was nervous that when he was talking about ta- now, so let's let's talk about what tapering is. The tapering is pulling out of the market by the Fed. Since the pandemic began, the Fed, in an unprecedented move, has been buying 120 billion in corporate debt a month. So corporations, big corporations, how they finance their capital needs is they float bonds. Normally, the public buys it and they pay an interest rate and they use the money to expand inventory, everything to run their business. Well, the Fed, rightfully so, recognized the difficulties we were going into and started buying those corporate bonds up to $120 billion a month. There was no liquidity crisis like there was in 2007. If we took anything from 2007, we should take cash. Liquidity is like air to humans. Okay, If you're a corporation and you could have a ton of assets, assets are like food. Okay, That's good to have. You could live for three weeks without food. It's not a big deal. Longer. You could go longer than that. Three months, something like that. You could live three minutes without air. That's what you need. You need liquidity. You need cash. That's what corporations need. Look, look at any one of the companies we work for. The day they can't pay you is the day you no longer have a company because it's the day you're not showing up to work and I'm not showing up to work. That's called cash liquidity. So the Fed stepped in and took care of that. They said, we're going to buy $120 billion a month. Okay, that's one thing. The second thing they said is, we're going to keep interest rates super low. Okay, We're going to make so much liquidity out here that the central bank will put so much cash into every bank's pocket. Anybody who wants a loan can get it, and it's going to be no interest rate. So what he announced last week was, they're going to begin tapering sooner rather than later. They're going to stop with the $120 billion a month. Maybe it goes down to $60 billion. Maybe it goes to $10 billion. I don't know. But what he said was the threshold to lower interest rates is much higher than the threshold to begin tapering. That's all the stock market needed to hear to go, woo, okay, which is, which for us is tremendous because what it means is the low interest rate environment will allow for transactions to continue. And our lending world thrives in low interest rate transactional environments. We don't do good when things can't trade. When things are trading, Lima One can step in and provide financing for you. If there's no deal between a buyer and a seller because of affordability, they can't do a deal. And that's the case. So that's why I was very positive about what I saw. 
Yeah, I think I watched it, read a handful of articles around it just to see what the sentiment was. And your quote there about tapering versus interest rate upticks cited in every single one, like near the top, right? That's that's all you need to know. You don't need to go watch the half hour, Chairman Powell. That's, that's it in a nutshell. So yeah, tremendously positive news for the real estate investment and lending space. That gives some confidence you know, call it what, through the end of the year and through at least a good portion of next year, timeline-wise, yeah? Yeah, I don't think you're going to see interest rate increases until the second quarter of next year, maybe the third. So the way we're going, you know, the way we're going. We're, you, interesting enough, you're seeing a pullback in travel now. Less people traveling because of the new Delta variant. You're going to see the EU is discussing restrictions on U.S., Residents flying there for non-essential purposes. So we're, we're not going to be able to fly out of the country. So you're going to see a global slowdown again after we thought we were over it. Now, the question is, is there going to be another variant next year that causes the same thing? So, you know, we're going to go back and forth on that. But with that, you know, the, the Fed's balance sheet can grow tremendously. And Congress has given them the authority. So Everybody should, there's an old saying, don't fight the Fed, okay? And it, it could never be more true. If, if the Fed has stepped in and said, we're going to support this economy, this business, this sector, bet on this economy, this business, and that sector, it is not going to fail. If they step away, that's when it becomes a problem. It goes back to liquidity. The golden rule, the man with the gold makes the rules, person with the gold makes the rules, the if you own the printing machines, you got you got the gold. So I think that's we are better positioned in this country to bounce back than any other country in the world. I think the the federal government and it started with uh, President Trump, the Fed's action, the ability to act quickly when they had to to provide the liquidity, the oxygen that we needed to live, came through, and that was huge. Now we could talk about going forward how this is going to become a problem very soon. And this is where we said everything always reverts back to politics. Do you mind if we if we transition to this now? Let's do. All right. So you're looking at elections this November. There's two gubernatorial elections up, New Jersey and Virginia. Both of them will go Democratic. It's not a question. The question is what happens in the midterms next year. Now, in modern day presidential history, no president that was elected, wins his midterms. Trump lost big. Obama lost big. Clinton lost big. Go down the line. Bush Jr. lost big. Bush Sr. lost big. Reagan lost. So they all lose because what happens is the other party's base gets ginned up and so upset about the policies that are going on, they come out and strong and and it happens. Now, the yeah, that's what happens. So the margins in the House are so small now that I think the House is going to flip to the Republicans. And the Senate, it's virtually tied. So I think you're going to look at a Republican House and Senate in two years, but a year from now, which means, think about it this way, are they going to allow for the president to stand in front of the mic and give financial help to those who have been receiving it before his election or re-election in 2024. What do you think? Ah, 
That's going to be tough to see that happen. So now let's assume the liquidity is no longer being put into the market. The Fed is different. The Fed is funded by Congress. It's supposed to be independent, but it's not really because their authorization and their money comes from Congress. So there are going to be definitely restraints on the ability to give these tax benefits, these payments for people who are staying home. That's going to be gone. There could be restraints on the ability of the Fed to put money out because their budget could be capped by Congress. So let's just assume they don't have as much firepower as they had. Then you're going to start seeing companies' values get impaired, companies be hurt. And that's when the world slows down. And that's what I'm concerned about. So I think we're going to have a good run between now and next November. And as soon as office is, is sworn, the new Congress is sworn in in January of 2023, then all bets are off the table. It kind of feels inevitable when you lay it out that way. The fact that every modern president, the midterms swung against them, knowing the current political environment. Is there any way what you laid out doesn't happen? It feels like it's a another pretty locked in bet. Well, look, I could tell you, paint a scenario where you elect a Republican president in 2024. You have a Republican Senate and Congress. Taxes get lowered. You know, good, you know, the roaring times are here again and you start moving up again. I don't think it's going to be Armageddon. I think it's going to be uh, problematic for a certain amount of period of time. I don't think we're going to see a great recession again. The biggest X factor that I don't know, two, two X factors, what COVID does and what the world reaction is to all this debt we put on our balance sheet and how that affects us. But when you look at debt in general, what it really affects is the credit. And everybody still wants their money in the United States. This is where it is. We have the best economy in the world. It's not even close. And, you know, we talk about China competing. Nobody knows what's going on in China, right? Like nobody, nobody could tell you, you know, China could tell you, yeah, we're X and it could be X minus Y. I have no idea. And, and, and you see that. And, and so we're the strongest economy in the world and we're going to stay the strongest how the world reacts to our debt and how that acts as a anchor on our growth, we'll see. But I'm cautiously optimistic for the next 12 months. And then after that, we're going to go through some rough time, choppy water, which is why you got to get your foreclosure stuff in order quickly. That's it. Give John and the team a call. Give us a call. Square you away. So we have covered a lot. Could I ask a couple of high level Softball is not the right word. Very cerebral-esque questions. So let's call it insights for investors, right? What would you recommend, and you can answer one or both, what would you recommend You know, big things you're seeing investors doing across the board that should stop immediately? And conversely, things that you're seeing investors doing that are not doing that they should start doing? So look, I am in my end a real estate guy. And I believe staying true to your underwriting. Don't push advance rates beyond 85, 90%. I'd leave them at 85. Don't push it. Values are going to pull back. You are lending against artificially inflated values caused by a exodus of cities to the suburbs. That's not going to last because demand is going to fall. Now, we do have a 
in the housing market, a shortage of millions of homes that weren't built over periods of time. So I get it. But I will tell you, the new generation does not want to own homes. They are into experiencing and renting and flexibility, and they don't want to be tied down to a home with maintenance and landscaping and upkeep. And and that is going to ultimately affect the the demand for housing in our country over the longer period of time. So for lenders, do your underwriting and stay true to it. It's okay to pass on a deal. Okay, do not chase deals. It's it's dumb, 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 because you're going to end up. And and for all you investors who are selling your paper to originators, who are selling your paper to third party investors, you have buyback obligations. And so, you know, don't think you don't act like a broker. Underwrite it like it's going to stay on your balance sheet. So my advice is do not push the advance rates. Do not lend to borrowers who are not strong borrowers like shady people. That, you know, that, you know, you know who they are. Don't do it just to close the deal. Last month, we closed a thousand deals in my office and I'm up to speed, you know, on pricing across the country. And we watch and I look at it and sometimes my lawyers bring in a deal and I look at this, I go, who's funding this deal? Are they out of their mind? You know, and I, and I call my and I actually say, are you out of your mind? What, what, what did I say? I go, are you, did you read this? And I mean, it's like. The guy has a low credit score. They're advancing 95%. You know, they're, they're, doing, they're bending over backwards. I go, for what? It's, a, it's not a great property. What are you doing? And they're like, oh, okay, okay. You know, this happens not often, but just be true to real underwriting. This is a time we're going through. It's okay to pass on some deals. It's okay to make a little extra money now, less money now, but to be in business in the future. Yeah, like you said, not a precipitous drop off real estate value wise coming, but it's not. You look at Austin, Texas, year over year, thirty six percent growth. That's the top of the pyramid example of uh, the next twelve months. Is it going to look like that? No, it's not. Is this true bona fide appreciation, thirty six percent for thirty six percent? No, there's plenty of true appreciation in there, but it's not a hundred percent of that. And that that's not picking on Austin. That's replicated in most every single MSA in the country. So yeah, it's inevitable that there's probably going to be a little bit of a, a stabilization, right? There's going to be stabilization and yeah, you want to have that buffer as an investor to make sure that you aren't running so close to the edge that when the tide comes in just a smidge further, you're getting your feet soaked. So yeah, that's good sage advice again. So John, good. No, I was just say the other thing I'd say is and this is a little self-serving, executing closings properly will protect you in the long run, okay? Filling out paperwork, like it's easy to, everybody has a document generation software program. Everybody has documents that comply with state. The key to closings properly is getting title correctly, negotiating it, taking out those general exceptions that don't apply, getting the endorsements, reading the back title, making sure you're covered if there's a fraud, or if something unscrupulous is going on. And then the execution of the closing, the movement of money, making sure everybody who touches it is properly insured, licensed, and properly authorized by those who are insuring them. And these are things that you have to get right. Like we boiled it down to a science here, and we're constantly tweaking it to make it better. 
people who tell me, oh, we're closing in house. We're just, we, we have a lawyer. He fills out the, that's a disaster waiting to happen. There is no insurance there to keep you covered if, if the shit hits the fan. And, and you may say, I haven't gotten tagged yet. You've only been lucky. All you got to do is be tagged once and you'll realize the risk you're running. And that's, that's what I recommend. Execution is really important to do correctly. Yeah. In my normal day job on the Linux side of the fence, you hear horror stories. And the same advice I think is applicable to the investor side of the fence. You hear, I've heard no shortage of stories of you know, clients who get into a particular situation, have a conversation with the lender, and it's clear that didn't read a single line of the closing package that they signed. They didn't have counsel read it. And it's like, hey, uh, page four, paragraph three answers the question in full. And it is complete opposite of what you are expecting. But this package was signed every single doc initialed six months ago. You don't want a, a borrower going, oh, I didn't read that or I didn't understand it. That's why over a certain threshold, you got to get borrowers counsel to issue a legal opinion saying not only did he read it, I explained it to him and it's all good, right? Because that's the, these are the loopholes you close and it's a little extra at the closing. It's a little extra aggravation. It's a little extra cost. But if you get tagged in a situation, you're going to be so happy you have it. Yeah, Pennywise pound foolish. The, the edge of that cliff is it's hard, fast and deep. John Hornick, one of, if not my favorite people in the space to interact with. I think I probably met you at a Pitbull conference years ago. Yeah, probably four or five years ago, something like that. When are you up for election next? Two years from now, it would be my fifth term. You know, in my, in my world, I'm running until I'm not. So I haven't made a decision if I'm running. So that means I'm running. I'm supporting three council candidates now for control of my governing body. We have a five-member council, so I run all the campaigns in town. So I enjoy it. I just, you know, and and there's some board of ed seats up. So it's fun. It's like a local game going on, small time, but it's fun. I enjoy it. No, not. You're you're far too humble. Are you, Are I was just looking through, for some reason, I was on our county's election website and looked at kind of upcoming spaces. Are you one who runs unopposed or do you have to break out the stick and uh, and get to fighting? Last election, I ran unopposed. I've had three opponents. Uh, my first race, I ran the ballot incumbent. It was a terrible, dirty election. It was it was big time. It was, but we won that one. And then since then, it's been kind of easy. It hasn't been difficult. So it's, we run, we have a good formula. It's kind of like, you know, pick your team. It's like the Patriots, right? In football prior to Brady leaving, you know, it's like, yeah, we, we were, everybody knows what they need to do. Everybody knows where to block, protect the quarterback, do this. And we ended up with it. That's it. It's just a formula. So until the other side shows me they could they could they have a better plan or I see something different, we're going to stick with the formula and it's been pretty successful. I think we've won something like 17 seats in 18 races. We lost one seat back in 2012, a council seat, and it was okay to lose that. So I think our, our percentage, our win percentage is like almost 98%, almost 97%. And now the great people of Marlboro, New Jersey, love you as much as I do. And they're like, well, we're not even going to run anybody against this guy. He's just, hey, let's keep it rolling. I love it. I think they're scared. Elections are about, you know, personal exposure, opening yourself up. Look, I'm not, I'm definitely not loved 100% in my town. We have a lot of people 
I'm sure that can't stand me. They just haven't figured out how to beat me yet. So that's 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 a it's different to not stand. I mean, it's hard in this day and age to make everybody happy. And when you're making decisions, what's best for the town, you are going to piss people off. I mean, I'll give you a quick example if we have a moment. In 2012, there was a terrible tragedy in Sandy Hook School in Newton, Connecticut. There was a school shooting where uh, four and five year old children were killed by who got in. It was terrible. And it was after that, I have a daughter who at that time was of that age. And I remember we got the police report on what happened there. It was horrible. I won't go into the details, but what these kids went through at an age, they didn't even know what was going on. And it really moved me. So I required every school in my town to have an armed police officer, an ERT, an early response technician, we call them. They were first responders. They have SWAT training and they are positioned in every school that we have. And I pushed that through. I said, I believe this is right. Now, there are a whole bunch of people out there who don't want guns anywhere near their kids. And we don't need this. This is over. This is an overreaction. To me, it wasn't. So, you know, we ended up pulling it and 52% wanted it and 48% didn't want it at the time, which was shocking to me. I thought 90% would want it. But we got that, you know, but... I believed in it. It's there. It exists. And I'm sure today it's fine. I'm sure it, it would pull better today if we pulled it today. But it's the right thing to do. And I, I could sleep at night knowing they're there. Same thing with this mask requirement. Governor Murphy, governor of New Jersey, who uh, I had dinner with last week in Marlboro, said, you know, there's a mask mandate. The kids going back to school have to wear masks. There's a large population of my town that wants somehow me to intercede and go, it's not required. Well, th- these people don't understand preemption, that if the governor makes it a law, I got to follow. I can't. I, I don't have the ability to buck. And if the president makes it a law for him, as long as it's constituted, he has to follow. So there's no discretion here. And there are people who don't want their kids wearing masks in school, and they want the right to stay home and homeschool, which is not an option either, or learn remotely. So these are issues, real issues that piss people off. And to their core, And it's, you know, so you talk about popularity, it's very hard to say that any elected official is popular these days. It's because you're only, you know, there's so many angry people out there. Yeah. To end on a a self-deprecating and hopefully humorous side, you touched on the two reasons why I don't think I'll ever run for public office. One, just opening yourself up for attack. I am a sensitive sweet boy. And two, you mentioned digging skeletons out of the closet. Absolutely. Just nope, not even going to run. I'll just stay, stay doing my thing, my man. Dawn, I'm finding it hard to believe you have that many skeletons in your closet. Oh, no. A couple of dusty ones in there. <laughs> so last time we were talking, you asked me a, a great question, what I ate for breakfast, my favorite cereal. So I'm going to ask you a question. How has it been growing up with two first names, Dalton Elliott? How, how has that been for you? It has not. So, so the one I get more than the two first names is Dalton from Roadhouse, Patrick Swayze. That's the one that, that comes out. It's always someone twice my age who asks about it. Thankfully, going to school, like growing up through school, nobody I went to school with ever had seen the movie Roadhouse. It was just kind of an early 90s, maybe even late 80s movie. It's been good. I don't run into a lot of Daltons, which is kind of nice. I got to tell you something. Roadhouse, one of my favorite, I call it worst movies. Everybody thought it was terrible that you loved. And, and, and Roadhouse is my number one. My number one. 
It's so funny you said that. It's, it's if, if I'm flipping through TV stations and it's on, it's like I'm watching it. It is the greatest for the world who's watching. For those of you who don't know, you watch Roadhouse. It's about a bartender in the Midwest who goes in to clean up a town and he's fighting with like the town boss. And it's just and he knows karate. It's a great it's a great movie. I really it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's a great, horrible movie, like you said. And, and you, I think you described it perfectly. It's one of those movies that if you're just kind of mindlessly flipping through on a Sunday morning, getting ready to go do dishes or something, and it's on, you're like, I'll leave this on and kind of let it play in the background and catch all the good parts of it, stitching himself up and all that good stuff. John, dear friend, thank you so much for joining the Real Estate of Things. I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Anytime, Dalton. You know, you know I love you. I really enjoy it. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common-sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team. And that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.